Another of the great passages from the Christmas story is in John chapter 1. He was in the world, and though he made everything, the world did not recognize him when he came. He came unto his own, but his own did not receive him. But as many as did receive him, to them he gave the right to become, wait for it, children of God. Children born not of natural descent or of human decision or of a husband's will, but children born of God. God. I want you to imagine in the middle of this platform here uh, a large wall that goes from side to side, impenetrable, thick, and dark. And in the center of that large wall is two big castle doors that would swing open. And everything behind that door is invisible to you bigger than anything that is on this side of the wall. I'll put it on the screen for you so you can see what I'm thinking. You see that wall? That's you, that little thing right in front of that cracked door. Behind it is this rich, penetrating light, and everything here is a little darker. Behind it are things that you cannot see But this side of that door are things that you can see clearly. And what I've been thinking as I've been working through Christmas this year is this. I'm thinking of this as kind of being the image. I said last week that when we come into Christmas so much of the time, we think about the meaning of Christmas, which is the stories, the nativity, the carols, the cards. It's everything that makes sense to you. I say baby in a manger, bowing wise men, shepherds sent from afar, Mary ponders in her heart. All those verses, that stuff that you know, that is on this side of the wall. That's the meaning of Christmas. But I'm intrigued this year by what is behind the door, what is the mystery of Christmas. Mystery is what you don't understand. It's what you can't put together. It's what doesn't make sense. It's unprecedented. It's unthinkable. It's outrageous. It's unreasonable. But it's true. (laughs) And my concern is that at Christmas time, so many of preachers like me, we, we fill up these weeks talking about things that make perfect sense, but we don't talk enough about things that don't make sense. We, we tell stories and we relay our lives to their lives in the Bible and say, you too should bow down and worship or you too should ponder in your heart and I've done these sermons my whole life, and these are good sermons so far as they go. But you understand that for everything about Christmas that you can see, there is something that you can't see that is behind the wall. It's bigger than anything out here. And so out here, what you see is a baby in a manger. Back here, behind the wall is the mystery 
of the incarnation. So I understand baby in a manger, God in the flesh. But the incarnation is bigger than that. The incarnation is about the union of God and man. That's absurd. It may or may not use Christmas to make its point. But Christmas is only an illustration of something more mysterious behind the wall called the Incarnation. Now, the problem with mysteries is that you cannot enter them with your reason. See, and y'all were trained as I was trained by theologians. And theologians, God bless us, are scientists of thought. Theologians' raw material is ideas. And they slide it under a microscope and they study it, sometimes forgetting that while they're looking at it, the idea itself is studying them. That's the mystery. Bigger than them. So if you want to go through these doors and get into the mystery of the incarnation, you cannot use the powers of reason, for they will take you up to the door, but they will not let you go inside. You will walk around outside making astute theological observations, noticing this and doubting that and proving this, but you'll never get through the door into the mystery unless you engage Another faculty that is even stronger than the faculty of reason, that of imagination. And when you imagine something, you simply accept the premise that the person has put forth. You don't argue with him. If the writer says that there is a land called Narnia and there's a white witch with a lion that talks... You don't shake your head and say, I've never seen this and you can't prove it. And if the witch is white, why is she white? And does that make her good or bad? And You can do that if you want. Or you can just say, if the writer says there's a land called Narnia, then for the next few moments, there's a land called Narnia. If you want to go back to your nice little reason someday, you can all do that. But for the next few moments, you have to accept the premise of the writer himself, and you have to accept his terms. The other thing that you must do to imagine is you put yourself in the story so you're no longer walking on the outside looking into the story. When you imagine something, you say, wait a minute, this land called Narnia with powers of good and evil, this is my story. This isn't just that story. I'm in this. And so you don't look at a mystery. You get in a mystery and look out of it at everything else. And that's why you believe in mysteries. Not because they make sense. Mysteries don't make sense. It's that with mysteries... Everything else makes sense. 
all the pieces, the stuff that I, I've always known, but they were never connected. The mystery brings them together. I mean, I knew that I had this natural desire for innocence, and I knew that I kept wondering what would happen to me after I die. I knew that my expectations for the church was higher than any other organization in the world. I knew that I had this deep inward propensity to always seek forgiveness when I thought I had sinned. I knew I loved magic. I just didn't know why, and those little pieces were never connected. But when I get inside the incarnation and I look out through the incarnation at all of those pieces, why, they come together like, like on the cover of a puzzle box. Some of you hate puzzles, don't you? I'm with you. I hate them. I hate the pieces. I love the box. I just buy the box. My wife says, let's put it together. I said, just cut it out and put it on the wall. That's what mysteries do. They slide all the pieces together in one coherent piece. Take, for instance, the mystery of the virgin birth. <laughs> now, here's something that makes no sense at all. Here's something that you cannot prove empirically. You can stand on the outside of the virgin birth if you want, and you can raise questions, and you can ask us to prove it using the powers of reason. You can ask, if you want, biological questions, and if you do, you will get scientific answers. And then you'll start believing that the whole thing was biological. And you'll miss... The gospel's point. For the gospel's premise on the virgin birth is not that you can prove it, it's that you can't. It's, it's a mystery. It isn't something you engage with reason, it's something you have to go into with imagination. And you get inside the virgin birth, and you know what you'll find? Your own birth. You'll find your new birth. You'll find what it means to be born again. <laughs> and that would be a really good thing for some of you because you look a little tired. Let me play around for a minute with the mystery of the virgin birth. We have from the prophet Isaiah 750 years before Jesus is born, this will be a sign. A virgin will conceive and give birth to a son. and She will name him Emmanuel. Now remember, signs are not to be looked at. They are to be entered. Signs or mysteries, they're open doors into something you cannot apprehend with reason alone. This will be a sign. A virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and she'll name him Emmanuel. 
Luke tells us exactly what happened that day. He said the angel Gabriel appeared to a woman named Mary in a village called Nazareth. Here it is. She was pledged but was not yet married to be married to a man named Joseph. When the angel tells Mary that she will give birth to a child, Mary, knowing that she has never been with a man, says, how can this be? I'm still a virgin. And the angel says, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you so that the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Matthew picks up this same story uh, that was just read to you by Jim. And, and Matthew seems insistent on making sure you believe that this was a miraculous birth. Matthew wants you to know that this is a birth that should not have happened. He, I've tried to find the phrases. Here they are from Matthew chapter 1. Can you call that up for a moment? I see John, brother. I don't see Matthew 1. There it is. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. Was not, but was pledged. But before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. The angel said to Joseph, what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. This took place to fulfill what the Lord said through the prophet, a virgin will conceive and give birth to a son. So Joseph took Mary into his home, but he had no union with her until after she gave birth to a son. You, I mean, can you see what he is doing? He is making sure that whatever else you understand, this is a birth that should not have happened. Now you can stand, as I say, outside the doors and try to poke holes at it and try to figure it out with reason, or you can just walk into it and start poking around as I did. And if you do that, do you know what you'll find? None of this was Mary's own doing. Mary is not a partner with God. She is not acting. She is acted upon. God is coming into Mary not because she has invited him to come into her womb. By the time God finds her, he has already found her. He already has claimed her through reasons that are all his own. So Mary is chosen not because she has postured herself favorably, not because she has done this or done that. She is not chosen for what is in Mary. She is chosen for what is in God. through reasons that are all his own. Any attempt to elevate Mary and say, well, she must have done this, and can you notice the humble part? Any attempt to do that is to miss the point. She is born not of natural descent. This child is born not of human decision. It is not born of a husband's will. It is born of God. 
period, end. The second thing you'll notice is that the conception happens when Mary hears the word. The organ that Mary uses to conceive of this child is her ear. She hears the word and she makes room for it in her heart. There is no sexual activity happening here. When she hears the word and makes room for it in her heart, the conception has begun. She asks the angel, how will this be for I am a virgin? And the angel says to her, well, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you so that the one to be born will be called the Son of God. And Mary cannot say, oh, sure, I get it. That makes perfect sense. That answers all of my questions. So she stands in this moment with a half answer, all due respect. And she is still thinking to herself, I'm worried about my future. I know what happens to single pregnant women. I'm worried about my husband. Someone has said in this moment, she chooses God over her own family. And with no further explanation, she just says, I am the Lord's servant. Let it be to me according to your word. Something happens. And what happens is that the God of heaven unites himself in the womb of a human being. Let me try, if I can, to play with that idea for a moment. God joins himself with a creature, one that he has created so that what comes of it will be another creature. When God, the eternal, joins himself with a creature, he himself becomes a creature like other creatures he has made. And when he does this, he brings Mary up into union with himself. So that what is born is fully human and yet at the same time it is fully God. Let me be specific here. I know this is too much theology and theology is just reason I know this. But let me if I can try to, try to tell you what I am saying, what I am not saying. The church spent three councils or three creeds rather in four councils in the first five centuries telling us what this was and was not. The church said, this is not God with skin on. For the humanity of this child is its own humanity. 
This is not God using someone else's body to get his work done. This is the very flesh of God himself. And this is not just a human being who's souped up and becomes like God. This is the eternal one who has created all things so that by him, the one that is in the womb, I mean the creature, by the creature, all things have been made. Nothing has been made except what was made by the creature. This is genuinely, purely God. And this is not some rare blend of two natures slammed together into some souped-up person. This is not, said the early church, one person with two natures waffling back and forth so that whenever he's tired like a man, he goes into the bottom of the boat and he sleeps. But when he's sick and tired of the ocean rocking the boat, he stands up as God and says, be still. This is not God playing the man card, playing the God card. Let me tell you why that's important. Because every time we talk about your humanity and Jesus' humanity, you always distinguish them by saying, well, he was God, don't you? Do you not look at your own flaws in humanity and say, well, I am tempted and he was tempted, but then he was God. And so whenever he was tempted, he played the God card and that gave him an advantage that I don't have in my humanity. And that's why I'm stuck with all this stuff. The early church said in 451 that that was a heresy that this was not one person waffling back and forth between two natures. It was one person with two natures. Now in John, 50, 60 years later, the disciple will start to... Peer behind that door, and John says, He was in the world. And even though everything was made by Him, the world did not recognize Him when He came. He came unto His own, and His own did not receive Him, but as many as did receive Him, to them, he gave the right to become children of God. Wait for it. Children not born of natural descent, not born of a human decision, not born of a husband's will, but children born of God. When you look at the virgin birth, you see your own new birth. You go through the door and you look at what it means for you to be born again. And some of you, I know, you think you just grew up born again. 
Some of you have been born again so long, you're a little tired of it. But if you'll poke into the mystery of what it means to be born again, do you know what you will find? You will find that you had nothing to do with it. You will find that God acted for reasons that are all God's. Not for what is in you, but for what is in God. You're not a co-conspirator. You're not a partner with God. God is acting for reasons that are purely his own. Some of you Arminians, you're just like ready to faint right now. You are so worried about preserving that square inch called human will that you can't even enjoy the miracle of your salvation. You can't take it, can you? You say, you sound like a calf. I'm more Arminian than you are. I know how this sermon ends. <laughs> but this is a point worth stopping at. If you are genuinely born again, you are not born of natural descent. You are not born of a human decision. You are not born by your own will. You are born of God. I walked around the office this week thinking to myself, I have his life in me. I'm, I'm a guy, I'll never get pregnant. <laughs> That's a fact. But I got a new appreciation for what it is to have the life of God inside me. I've heard my whole life that this was a free gift. I've heard my whole life that this is a pardon for my sin. And it may be all of those things inside the Bible. But do you know what else it is? And do you know what else it is first? It is life. It is life. I have found myself as a pastor for years trying to disciple the dead, people that had no life. I was talking them into it. I was answering their objections, but nothing was coming alive. As a human being, I cannot plant this thing inside of a person. If the Holy Spirit doesn't put it in them, God bless them, but they're dead. I can't help them. I'm not mad at them. It's just something only God can do. These are my limits. I can argue a case. I can be as compelling and winsome as I want. They can even say yes. I'll pray that prayer. But unless the Holy Spirit gets inside of them in that moment, Paul says in Romans chapter 8, we are none of his. If we do not have the Spirit of Christ, we do not belong to Christ. That is what Paul said. That was his only definition of what a Christian was. It was not somebody who followed Steve's prescribed plans. It was one miraculously conceived by the Holy Ghost in the dead person's life. That's called salvation. You think I'm crazy, don't you? Somebody ought to be crazy about this. 
If this does not send you to your knees in a sense of reverence, I love you, but who do you think you are? You are played upon, you are not playing. You are host, you are not actor. And the moment the conception begins is when you hear the word. The organ that you use to be born again is the ear. You hear it and you open your heart. And when that word lands in your heart, it conceives of a new thing, a living thing, a growing thing that just takes you over. These are not my thoughts. Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 1, you were not born of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible by the living word of God. That's why you're born again. <laughs> And do you know what got born? Something new. Something alive. Something that you cannot create. Something that is from you and is within you. It is attached to you, but it is not your possession. Something that is bigger than you. Something that is growing. Something with a mind all its own. That's what got planted in you. Something that is purely human. Your humanity. Jesus took on your humanity. Even your sins even your addictions, he took them on. He just didn't get them the way you did. You earned yours. He absorbed them. And in that way, he can have your humanity without sinning your sins. When you look at the humanity of Jesus, you are so often tempted to just say, that is some supernatural being that I can never be. But I'm telling you, when Jesus comes into this world, we see a living picture of not only who God is, but what humanity is. When you look at Jesus, he is not just revealing God to you. He is revealing you to you. And sometimes you will absorb things and stay in things that you are supposed to get rid of because you say, well, you know, I'm, I'm just human and my humanity is keeping me from becoming holy when in fact the opposite is true. It is your unholiness that is keeping you from becoming human. 
Because Jesus is the definition of human, not you, not me. Him. You start with him and you get a totally different picture of what you can become. I was preaching in North Michigan some years ago and after the sermon, there was a call to come to the altar and partway through that call, a man, middle-aged, came up and he knelt and started to pray. I waited a few minutes, I interrupted him finally and said, can you tell me why you've came? And as I said it, his pastor was coming behind him and he knelt at his side. And Bob started to talk and he started to confess. He said, I've been a Christian my whole life and I've struggled with addictions and I'm struggling with the addiction of porn. I'm a 50-some-year-old man I'm supposed to be rid of this, he said, and I keep getting sucked into it, and I want so much to be free. And his pastor started to console him. He patted him on the back, and he said, Bob, listen to me. You are a Christian, but you are also a man. You have real flesh and real humanity. Men struggle with these things. You may come out of these things, but you will always feel the pull to go back into them. One day you will be free. But Bob, it can't be today. You are human. You are flesh. Bob looked at his pastor and said, but pastor, if there is none of this in Jesus' humanity, how can it be in mine? Pastor just said, well, well, I thought to myself, we ordained the wrong guy. This person may be an addict, but that one's a heretic. He has misunderstood the most essential point of the Christian life, the nature of the living Jesus. You miss that. It is game, set, and match from this point on. At least Bob, in the midst of all of his addictions and downward pull, got that. Maybe that's you. Maybe this morning you're saying, man, that is, I have all kinds of things that I'm into, I'm, I'm, I'm holding on to, and God is telling me to get rid of them. And I hear the word. I hear the word. I know what he's saying. Some of you, I know you think, well, God doesn't speak to me. You just wait. Because I think he speaks more often than we know, but we just have a pattern of not hearing and not opening our hearts some of you know this morning that God is specifically saying to you that. That's the thing right there that you keep calling human. It is not in his humanity. Let it go. And you keep wanting to hold it. Others of you. Um, keep wanting to get rid of things that you are supposed to hold. You have this souped up image of Jesus 
God playing the God card. He never tries. He never fails. He never gets sick. He never reaches his boundaries. He never gets frustrated. He never gets stuck. You have this magical God who just does anything he wants and defies all laws and limitations. And so you encounter a sickness or your own limitation, and you pray, God, if you are good and if you are real, you would take this away. But he has not taken it away, has he? And so you're starting to doubt whether God is all that you thought he was. Maybe he is more than you thought he was. Maybe he is not only God above the earth. Maybe he is God in the flesh. Maybe the worst things really can happen to people who don't deserve them, not because of what is in them, just because of life. And so you beg God, change this and take this away. And God is saying, no, bear it, hold it like Jesus. <laughs>